Open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We left off there in Genesis chapter 28. And we'll pick up our reading there in verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 28, starting in verse 16. And we take our title right out of the text as I try to do with this study. This is the house of God. Genesis 28, starting in verse 16, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And just a refresher, because it has been a couple weeks since Brother Paul was here last week. Um, he had a vision of Jacob's, what we know as Jacob's ladder, which we'd made reference to being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what he's waking up from his sleep, having experienced. And he was afraid, it says, and said, How dreadful is this place? And this is a reference to uh, of how the place was to be revered, not uh, dreadful as in horrible, never to return, but dreadful as this place deserves reverence because of the Lord's presence. This is none other, but this is none other but the house of God, Jacob says, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And this, this name, Bethel, means house of God. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If, which we can also read as since, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God." And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee tenth unto thee. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this text, as we uh, jump back into the context of the events of Jacob leaving and uh, his reasons for leaving being that dreadful experience with his brother Esau uh, and, and Esau's uh, feelings towards him at this point under the suggestion of his mother, Lord, I pray that you bring back to our minds, Lord, these the recent studies, Lord, uh, accentuated by the message that Brother Paul gave us last week because it really does apply uh, very, very well to the story of Jacob. And Lord, we just ask that you bless our hearts and minds, give us understanding, remove the distractions of this life, the burdens of this world, uh, the, the burdens and heavy emotions and the things that maybe we've already had to bear this week, Lord. We just ask that you'd um, remove that burden, that you would give us an opportunity, Lord, to be fed. Lord, we're thankful for the time we have together. We're praying, Lord, for those who are not with us, that they'll be able to return again at the next appointed time. We pray, Lord, for uh, those with affirmities, those with um, who have suffered loss. We pray for those that haven't been here in quite some time, Lord. What a, what a time they missed last week. Uh, with two different fellowships and visiting preachers and just uh, just a blessed time all around, Lord. We just ask, Father, that they'd feel that emptiness in some way in which they know they've missed something, that they should have a desire to be here. Be with those who are here. Give us a charge, Father, for the work that lies ahead. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text, I pointed out where the word if, if God will be with me, uh, could also be read as since. And to address that, I'd like to simply say that from his flesh, Jacob likely may have meant if. And that bears out in chapter 29, which um, I have the outline done, but I didn't want to send it and get anybody confused that likes to print those and bring them to services. But uh, it may be possible that in his flesh he did mean if. 
and stating that to himself would uh since he was stating what he himself would do should God prove to be faithful, and we know that God is always faithful and shouldn't be a conditional thing as far as our faithful service unto him as to whether or not he is faithful to us. Uh, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, but for the intents and purposes of where we are right now with Jacob, you can read it as since or if, understanding that his flesh necessitates the if and God's faithfulness necessitates the since. The emphasis of this passage is not questioning Jacob's faithfulness, but rather stating that as a result of God's faithfulness, there are things in which Jacob would be obliged to do. As a result of God's faithfulness, there are things we are also obliged to do. But namely here, he gives him thanks. And I'll point out, since I have the outlines done, we don't see him give the Lord thanks again for a little bit. Uh, not just a few verses, but uh, nearly a couple of full chapters before he acknowledges God's will for him and God's uh, forthcoming and planning for him. But as Paul would later write unto the church of Philippi, he says, Be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. And that's Philippians 1, 6. And we talked about this before, that we, we look to that as Baptists as a wonderful promise, but you ought to feel a little bit of that threat as well, that he who began this work's going to finish it. He might bring you to a point where you don't want to do away with certain things, and you don't want to repent of certain things, and you don't want to tithe faithfully, and maybe you don't want to attend faithfully. But he's going to finish this good work that he began. I pray that verse isn't a threat to you. I pray those watching and, and listening don't feel that verse as such a heavy weight that can't be bared. Because if the Lord has begun a good work in you, he's going to bring you through that. He's going to bring you to it. He's going to make it so that you see that there are things in your life you should do without. And he's going to bring you back to him. If Jesus, therefore, has been revealed unto you as Jacob's aforementioned ladder, then be prepared, beloved, to give him thanks always and oh how much better chapter 29 would go uh, if Jacob had already learned that lesson we see in the text our first point this is none other but the house of God the gate of heaven uh, and and I is a real joyful experience actually this outline uh, because I got to study again what a gate is and there are certain words in the Bible uh, specifically ones that the Lord uses in his ministry that uh, sometimes as I'm studying through, I, I see the word and I acknowledge, I know what a gate is, and I move right on. And we miss some of the typified blessings that lie within this word gate. What is a gate? It's defined, in, uh, and I've given you some of these resources in the bulletins at the start of the year as far as topical dictionaries and things of that nature. It is defined in those topicals, uh, specifically vines, as a place of entrance. This is the typical definition of a gate. In fact, most usages of the word depict a gate in closing something or as a place to enter into something. There are other times in which the gate was a place in which local courts convened. Sentencing was even executed in the city gates at times. This, this gate of heaven that's referred to here, based on our context, is making reference to the coming and going, and particularly Jacob's own entrance into God's favor. Uh, it is a wonderful, monumental thing, and, and his response to it is fitting. Uh, it is a dreadful thing. Think of what Jacob had seen in the previous chapters of our study. Think of what he's coming away from, what he's being sent away from, literally at this point. Uh, what a dreadful place. 
He experiences holiness. And, and beloved friends, holiness to our dreadfulness is a dreadful thing. Holiness next to our despicableness, our sinfulness, our wickedness is most dreadful because it reveals as light turned on in the dark just how wicked we really are. And I think that's what Jacob had in mind here. There's an exclamation point here, which we don't get in the Bible too often. How dreadful is this place? He's not asking a question, how dreadful is this place? He's stating, exclaiming, this is dreadful unto me. We could turn to Isaiah 6 and see a similar response to the holiness of God next to man. Yes, he previously claimed the blessings of his father. But here Jacob stands alone. He has no possessions, just rocks as a pillow. Resting his head on this stone with nothing to offer, he was granted entrance into the favor of our Lord by grace alone. Another picture that is not by works, it's not by offerings, it's not by sacrifices. A salvation comes by grace alone. Jacob is one who had a lot he could offer. He had a great inheritance coming from his father's side. Jacob could have offered a great many things, but Jacob did none of that. It is by grace alone that he sees the Lord Jesus Christ as a ladder, an entry point, a gate into the kingdom of heaven. Consider that word again in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, and we've seen this in our afternoon studies on Sundays, but consider this again. Enter ye in at the straight, which also can be translated narrow, gate enter ye in at the straight and or narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat because straight is the gate and narrow and this word narrow here actually in its definition has a, a connotation of affliction it's narrow in a troubled way not narrow like your pastor's too fat to go through it but narrow like going through it is going to lead it's going to ex, you're going to experience affliction you're going to be troubled going through this gate it's going to be obvious that you're a weirdo that you're a zealous person after the lord jesus christ a peculiar person as paul told timothy we are to be this narrow way is in an afflicted way a troubled way but as it says here it is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. As I was going through this study, and I, I, I can only imagine what this terrain, uh, what was, Luz, is now Bethel, what this terrain would have looked like. But as you look at the map, it, if we can assume there's some trees, maybe some mountains, maybe uh, a lake or a pond here and there. As far as his footsteps go, he could have gone any which way to go where he was going, but he went right there to that point and rested on those rocks. It's a straight way, a narrow way, and it's a way it's going to lead to some affliction. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about the 20 years he's about to serve before he goes back home again. It's going to lead to some affliction because, as I hope we're able to see, Jacob's no longer permitted to live however he wants to live. Uh, he's going to do that. He's going to have some fun in the next 20 years. But it's not going to be as fun as sin once was. This straight and narrow way is different than the world peculiar compared to the world gates were commonly known to be the weakest point in a city's wall and as a result they were frequently the object of a foe's attack to possess the gates was to possess the city they would say 
And it's fitting that since most gates to a city were named for what was given uh, or what was sold there, so there'd be the sheep gate where sheeps were typically uh, sold or exchanged. There'd be the fish gate where the, uh, the fishermen would come to, the, uh, to sell their fish, their take. This one is referred to as the straight gate, the narrow gate, the afflicted gate. It's named well as well. I was laying out, uh, and I've, I've charged the family, and I'll charge the church with it too. Something should happen to me before I finish uh, the study through the Lord's ministry. And I've been working on this for five, six years now. Uh, I charge you all to finish it. Find somebody who's going to come behind me and finish that thing. Um, there's, there's eight parts, nine parts in total. And I've just finished the outlines for the, for the sixth and seventh part. We just wrapped up the fifth part. Uh, and Lord willing, if I don't travel as much this year as last year, we're going to start uh, what most would refer to as Passion Week before the end of the year. Um, and and I, it's not a great study because it's a wonderful work I did. It's a great study because it really breaks your heart when you consider what the Lord went through. And I'm, my prayer all along is that when we get to that Passion Week, when we get to uh, that literal week that the Lord went through before his crucifixion, that we're going to understand a little bit better everything that went into it, everything he experienced, all the. I mean, everything comes back to that point. Those you could pick any point so far that we've covered. Nicodemus, for example, and it all comes right back to the surface during that week. Nicodemus is involved. Uh, there's just so many things there. But as we think of this gate being called the straight gate, the narrow gate, this afflicted gate, it's named after Christ Jesus and what he went through for our sakes. Jesus saith unto him in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We might add, no man would come to the Father but by him. No man could come to the Father but by him. And no man will come to the Father but by him. Jesus being our gate to the Father is the only penetration point, but he is not weak even in the slightest. What Jacob beheld was precious, and that it was the only way to the Father. This ladder that has uh, possibly been misconstrued through the ages by commentators, this is a rare vision. This is a rare thing to contemplate as you bed upon rocks in the middle of the, uh, of the desert or the wilderness, wherever it might have been. The gate of the city was also where announcements were made and where legal business transactions were made. And again, we see fitting that the straight gate, this narrow gate, this afflicted gate, is where the business of our salvation, our atonement for our sins, our very souls were purchased at that gate. What an awesome study it would be to just understand just that component, just that role, just that attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ more fully. We see now as Jacob arises in our text that he, he arose early. He's showing more of an Abraham-like characteristic already. He appears ready to go, ready to put into practice this charge, this experience that he had. And as you may recall, Abraham was called to leave the land of his fathers as well. How better to find yourself fully dependent upon God the Father when you no longer have other options? You don't have... Uh, daddy's favoritism you don't have mommy's persuasiveness uh, you need you have to find a new way to walk a new strength to draw from and this is the same thing that we see Jacob experiencing here honestly given this event it would likely be hard I would imagine to return to sleep uh, again he uses the word dreadful 
to describe this place of this interaction and this encounter, if you will, with God. Could you imagine trying to go back to sleep after something like this? This was not a mere inability to sleep, though as we see Jacob go right to work on honoring the Lord with this memorial. And that brings us to our third point. He sets up a pillar and he pours oil on top of it. Uh, and I will tell you up front, we're going to come back to this later uh, after Jacob goes a couple chapters and quite a few years without acknowledging God for a, for a minute. Uh, he ends up back at this same place. But the beginning of it, the foundation of it starts here. The pillow that once served as Jacob's rest was to be anointed for a new purpose. Rather than an animal sacrifice for this altar, Jacob dedicated it with oil as a special place of God in which he saw the truth. As mentioned in the title, this is the house of God. This is his acknowledgement. And it might sound strange to us that this uh, pile of rocks, this place where he slept in the open, exposed would be considered the house of God. But how is it that the Lord describes the house of God and what we would refer to as the church today? A city exposed, a city set upon a hill, an easy-to-find inn, open, vulnerable, loving, forgiving. That's a good way to get hurt, somebody might say. You go out into the world like, a, like this, you're going to be a doe-eyed, sheepish little thing kicked around, the, the, the little cartoon of the muscle man kicking sand in somebody's face, you'd be the one getting sand kicked in your face in this example. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Take it on that side as well. Jesus says, this is my church. This is my bride that will love first without limit, will forgive first without condition. And immediately after saying that this is a dreadful place, Jacob acknowledges this to be the house of God. So let's connect the two. The house of God. This dreadful place. And again, we don't mean dreadful as in a, a place we mourn over. This dreadful place where we come and our wickedness is exposed. Our toes are made sore. Our egos are destroyed. Our arms are weakened. Where we walk out of here, less of ourselves and more of him if we've worshipped in spirit and in truth. That's what Jacob saw here was the truth. That's what was dreadful unto him was the truth. We have a rock such as this stone that has served as a firm foundation for which the church was built upon. In Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, we read Jesus saying, Upon this rock I will build my church, and he's not talking about Peter, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto the keys of the king unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 Paul writes but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how oughtest how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God and he describes it as the pillar and the ground of the truth that's what Jacob establishes here as a pillar, this dreadful place. The church of our Lord is to stand as a memorial in every community that she is in, to be a memorial to the truth that she was established by. We know this from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, 
And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is the authority. Go ye therefore, this is the command, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And there's the promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is a dreadful thing. This is a holy commandment, a holy commission, a holy work that unholy creatures are called unto. This means that in the very involvement in accomplishing the commission, we would be made holier. Not holy in 100% style, not holy as in never needing to repent again, but things will be revealed unto us along the journey that we need to repent of, that we need a better understanding of, that we need to be edified in and perfected in. And we see here as our fourth point, Jacob sanctified the place. As we mentioned in our attributes of God, God is omnipresent, everywhere present at all times. But this place was to be a memorial. It was always to be Bethel from that day forward. It was never again to be Luz. It was never to be the way it once was. It was changed forever by this dreadful revelation. There's a picture there. Born again believer. You are also not to be Luz any longer. You are to be different than you were found. Renaming something or someone has been set apart for a specific purpose, has been a common practice that we have seen in our study thus far. Abraham from Abram, Sarah from Sarai. We see it in the New Testament as well with Simon and Saul. This place would never be the same. And Jacob would not be permitted to be the same either. Oh, how dreadful, the old man says. Oh, how dreadful this thing has come to ruin my fun to ruin my possession of this body, of this life, of this personality. Oh, how dreadful, the old man nature says. We could have been so much. We could have attained to such heights. And here we are. Oh, how dreadful. And then we see Jacob make a vow, and this is our fifth and final point. And if you know Genesis 29 and 30, you know there's some things coming, but... Hear the vow for what it is here at the conclusion of Genesis 28. Jacob did not merely dedicate this rock or pillar, which would eventually be an altar. He dedicated himself to the leadership of God. I'm not really much on the coming forward and, and doing rededication thing. I know some of our Baptists do that sort of thing. Uh, I've always thought it was strange uh, when you should repent and you call it rededicate instead, but we can talk about that another time. Uh, but I want to bring this out. He's dedicated himself for the first time at this dreadful event to the leadership of the Lord. This is what he wanted. This is what the Lord had delivered upon him, though he couldn't have attained to it himself. And he dedicates himself to this. And the reason I'm emphasizing this rededicate thing is because just because he makes a vow doesn't mean Jacob is necessarily equipped to do it. We've seen Simon Peter a lot in our Sunday afternoon studies saying a lot of things that he can't attain to do either. Uh, he was never going to stop the Lord uh, from going through the crucifixion for one thing. But there are quite a few other things that he was never going to be able to do on his own. Jacob makes a vow here. Dedicating himself to the leadership of God as God being his keeper and vowing to return a tenth to his provider. 
Now, first, as God is his keeper, he's trusting all his needs to be provided for by God. And he just about abandons it as quick as he makes it. But I have to ask, have you made the same vow? Are you equipped to trust God in this way? Because this may, might mean tomorrow he takes everything away. This might mean tomorrow you lose your job. You lose your spouse. You lose your children. You lose your animals, Job. This might mean tomorrow could possibly go away. You don't want it to. And by the end of tomorrow, you might not want to make that vow anymore. You might not want to keep your word. Are you actively trusting all your needs to be provided by God? He will test that, and rightfully so. He knows your heart, but you need to know your heart. You need to know if indeed you do trust God in this way. Are you giving him all the praise for all that has been done in you? Are you beseeching him for further needs that you will have in the work he has called you to? Sadly, our, our dedication sometimes is, thank you, Lord, for this food. Dedicate the energy that you will give me from eating this food to you. And then when we run low on energy, oh, man, I'm hangry. The food is gone. The energy has departed from me. I have been forsaken. How could I go on? I curse you that you would allow me to grow so weak again. Are you trusting your future endeavors to the wisdom, the grace, and the leadership of God? Because, again, that means those things may not go the way you want them to. He wants you to trust in him, after all. Not trust in the provision, but trust in the provider. And the second thing we see here is he vows to return a tenth to God. So I have to ask, what good would 10% be to one who has received such eternal blessings? This is a logical thing for us to say of Jacob. He's given all things. All he had before was a rock and apparently some, uh, some water, some liquid in which he dedicates this pillar. He probably has some other things with him, but he doesn't seem to have much. What good would anything be to one who's received so much of God? Do you visit that box back there in that manner? Do you support the Lord's church? Do you bring the tithes into the tithes house with the same idea in mind that God has provided you all things? What good is a measly 10% compared to what he has in store for you tomorrow? Return all these things unto God, a love offering above and beyond that 10%. How dare a pastor ever preach on that these days? Yeah, that's what we say, all done. I've given my 10%. All done, not given more. What if God gave that way? I gave you a good Monday. Not giving you any more. We'll see you on Sunday. It will not go with him, sure, but it will also not grow in prosperity with him. To take what is not his, to rob God, uh, it will not grow in his pocket. God has purposes for all things, and our returning the tithe is faith in that purpose our returning that tithe 10% of what he had initially given us he had given us not your employer not the government what God had allowed for you to be provided returning that unto him is show as a show of faith on your part that you trust in his provision we do not see here how Jacob gave this tithe unto the Lord 
Well, we will see in Genesis 35 that he is found faithful, for when he returns to this place, God grants him a new name, a name of Israel, which means God prevails. And it's this place, this pillar, when made an altar, this pillar, which is a, I've been teaching tonight as a type of the church in many ways, is really a type of, type of Jacob himself. Because as he departs from this place, he's just a couple of rocks, anointed for a purpose, but can't do it yet. He's just a couple of rocks, sanctified. He's going to be preserved, but he's got to grow. He's got to grow. The person of Jacob is now resembling that sanctification that we mentioned uh, earlier and we mentioned in our Sunday studies as well. Can you imagine the opportunity he had to witness every time someone called after him as Jacob after that point? Jacob, what are you doing after work? Uh, it's Israel now. It's Israel because Israel means God prevails. And he prevailed with me. He prevailed in me. And God has established all things. And he's established a promised lineage. And though I'm about to make a mess out of my household that uh, really makes what I just left behind to be nothing, by comparison, <clears throat> God's going to bring forth the Messiah from one of these boys. And they're all going to be a part of the promise. God prevails. And I'm sure the other person's probably like, I just wanted to know what you were doing. I'm sorry I got your name wrong. But he had an opportunity every time somebody slipped up and called him Jacob to talk about God and to talk about God prevailing. You have that same opportunity. You're a Christian, which means Christ-like. You have an opportunity to talk about how you're like Christ, which might be very little. Now, that would be me. But you get to talk about how you like Christ how you love Christ, how you long to see Christ, how this is not your home, because one day you'll dwell with Christ. Notice that tithing was not a condition of the promises God made here. Jacob was seeking to honor his God. God did not say, that blurry thing behind me, I will make it clear if you vow at the end of all this to give me a tithe for the rest of your life. He reveals Christ unto him. We would be crazy. We'd be called crazy, at least, to, to, to give the way God gives, to trust the way, seemingly, from fleshly perspective, the way he trusts Jacob here. And yet, it was unconditional. It was later instituted through the Mosaic law as an obligation according to God. It would later even be a political law among many ancient kingdoms, but during Jacob's time, neither of these laws were in existence. He tithed, or vowed to tithe, rather, because he felt obliged to. Because of this dreadful experience, because of this dreadful place, because what had been revealed unto his meager existence was so significant Maybe because of something he heard about Melchizedek and Abraham and the battle that was fought when Lot was freed, as we taught, and the tithe that Abraham gave then. Don't know. Scripture doesn't go into that. But it also doesn't go into how he was forced to, how it was conditional for his salvation. He was willing. In the day of God's power, in the day of God's revelation, we see a willingness in Jacob. We see the beginning of a pillar, the beginning of what would uh, later be Israel. 
a prevailing. Tithing is not a requirement of salvation <coughs> even today. You absolutely should do it. The church absolutely needs you to do it. But certainly throughout the ages, you've seen churches close their doors. And I'm sure everybody in here knows how money works. I don't have to lecture on this. We hear every single month how much was tithed. And I'm sure we could all do the math and wonder, how is it that we are the, <laughs> the least profitable human beings in the Mantachi area to tithe the amount that we supposedly tithe is 10% of everyone's income? I'll leave that there. Tithing is to be done willingly with the understanding that it is God's. It's not ours. When you don't give tithes unto the Lord's house, you're robbing God. This is what we addressed in Malachi. You'll turn and say, wherein have I robbed thee? And boy, will he reveal it. With a deeper understanding that God will use such faithfulness to care for his church, to care for his missions, these two missionaries that came through this past week, since I've been here off and on, we've supported Sam Root. Uh, when, he's, when he's needed it, we help support him coming back to the States this last time. We've taken on the Wyoming work and supporting them. Those things are only possible from our faithfulness and our tithing. Each and every individual here plays a part in that. I know of many who add to their tithe a love offering, which, as we mentioned, is above and beyond that 10% notion. Others even double tithe, which I don't know that I have that kind of faith yet. God's grace is not measured by how much you give unto him, but you will never outgive him. And that's not simply a statement of, well, you know, the blessings of God are invaluable and without measure. They are invaluable and they are without measure. But you will quite literally never outgive God. If you make $40,000 a year, which he allowed for you to make, and you tithe 10% of that, which is $4,000, I assure you he will do much better than that in one year. And this isn't a Joel Osteen type thing. You're not going to drive Rolls Royces, but you don't need Rolls Royces. And Kraft Macaroni is pretty good. It really is. But there's a lot of works that the Lord has for his, his money, for his church, for his people. And it takes both money and time. This vow is represented as what we are called to faithfully do at the church, the pillar and ground of the truth in our day. Do you yet believe in Christ Jesus to be the way of the truth, this straight, this afflicted gate? And I encourage you, I urge you to dedicate your life to his purposes here at the pillar. Stand as a sanctified creature. Pursue after your master. I would strongly advise not making empty vows, and I'll allow you to make your own decision after you hear the next couple chapters. He's not interested in sacrifices. He's definitely not interested in empty promises. But if he's got an interest in you, he knows who you are, what you have. He will reveal unto you a great dreadful thing. Just be mindful of what he's bringing you out of. Be mindful of what the church is up against. Be mindful of the challenges of this world and this life and the, the responsibility we have to this community as a light and being the pillar and ground of the truth, a memorial to this community of what the Lord Jesus Christ did, taught, and died for. Just be mindful of such things. Be prayerful of such things. Pray the Lord will move our hearts, move our minds, move us to separate ourselves from time and money 
Because these things are not what assures us a kingdom. And they definitely don't assure us of peace. May the Lord be honored and glorified. Let's close with a word of prayer.